This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lend Me Your Ears, the film podcast where we see something new in cinemas or on a streaming service and connect and compare it to older films by the same filmmaker or in the same genre. Sometimes we give a little bit of love to the work of an actor, leader supporting, and sometimes we even get into uh, the technical uh, skills and department heads. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer and a critic. My blog is called Flaw in the Iris and it can be found at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a Halifax freelance writer and film enthusiast, and you can find me just about anywhere I'm on. <laughs> there you go. Uh, today, we are looking at the work of, I mean, one of the, I think it's universally uh, adored and appreciated cinematographer by the name of Roger Deakins. And everyone loves this guy, and we are going to be looking at his work in multiple films spanning over four decades. That's coming right up here on Lends Me Your Ears. Hi, and welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears, the show that takes a look at movies of all kinds and then connects them up with new stuff and old stuff. And today, uh, we're zooming in our focus on cinematographer Roger Deakins, who's uh, probably best known for his work with the Coen brothers, but has worked with a lot of other directors and filmmakers in all kinds of genres all over the world. And is, is, it's worth seeing pretty much anything that he's put his stamp on, no matter uh, what it's, where it's come from or who's made it, who wrote it, who directed it, whatever. It, there, there's going to be something in it visually that makes it worth seeing, especially on a big screen, if you can do it. And of course, the latest film that uh, bears his stamp is Empire of Light, which seems uh, appropriately named, considering uh, working with light is what he does, and then getting that... Uh, either onto film or digital. And he does have a certain look. Uh, I, I find there's like a, if you're looking for like a kind of a warm woodsy, maybe even retro-y kind of tone, uh, he seems to capture this, this very organic uh, ingrained kind of look for his films. And a lot of directors have put it to very good use. If you, if you think about the Coen brothers, do you think of the films that he worked on like Barton Fink uh, that, that have that uh, lived in kind of look. And he basically delivers exactly what those filmmakers want uh, over and over yeah. again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is funny because obviously he's most associated with the Coens, but like our recent show that we did on Carter Burwell, we're going to avoid his great yes. work with the Coens and we're going to save those. We are, I promise you, faithful listeners, we are going to do a Coen Brothers episode at some point in the near future. Uh, so no Barton Fink, no no Country for Old Men uh, chat today. However, Deacons, who is a Brit, his first feature in the United States was Mountains of the Moon, which I think is a film we've spoken about somewhere in our 160 episodes here on Lens Mirror. We have talked about it. Maybe we were talking about Bob Rafelson, uh, yeah. who directed it. And it's a great kind of adventure uh, drama about the discovery of the uh, the head of the Nile. A great uh, kind of old-fashioned throwback in a way. Very unusual for Rafelson and a beautiful picture. And, uh, and and a great triumph for him uh, coming over to North America. Yeah, and that was around 1990. And of course... Uh, Deacons shot the beloved Stephen King adaptation, The Shawshank Redemption. Now, according to the IMDb, and I think this is right, he was the most Oscar-snubbed cinematographer, <laughs> having been nominated 13 times between 1995 and 2016, before finally winning the statuette for his 14th nomination, Blade Runner 2049, which we did speak about for sure, and again for 1917, both of which we've talked about on this pod. So, so yeah, we have definitely touched upon his work before. Other great films of his include 1984, Sid and Nancy, Stormy Monday, 
Dead Man Walking, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford, which is a terrific Western, and of course Skyfall and Sicario, and those last two pictures we've definitely covered here. So uh, he's a big proponent of digital photography, so he's very much in tune with many of the 21st century lensers, uh, you know, and 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 directors. Um, he's just a remarkable uh, cinematographer. And it's funny that we've gone this long without really talking about specifically about one cinematographer over the course of our, uh, our show. But this, I mean, come on, uh, Roger Deakins, he has even his own podcast. This is a, this is a guy who's worth checking in on. Um, so let's talk about Empire of Light written and directed by Sam Mendes. Uh, you know, another one of these sort of semi-autobiographical dramas from uh, a well well-regarded filmmaker. Uh, following films like Belfast and The Fablemans, both of which were lovely and intimate. And, you know, I don't know that they're exactly world-changing cinema, but uh, but this is, you know, this is very much of a, of a type right now. Um, I liked Empire of Light a lot. I'm just going to put that out there. The critics have been kind of tough on the film for, and I can understand why, um, but there's something intimate about it. And I just feel like, and if since we're talking about Deacons here, it's the look of the thing is so gorgeous that... I mean, I think I said this in my review on my blog on Flaw on the Iris, um, but it's the kind of film that you could you could dial down, you could pull down the the, <laughs> the, the, the dialogue on the whole thing and just watch it for the imagery and also for the score, which is incredible, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, and just enjoy that. And that would do it. Like, I would have enjoyed two hours of just that. That's how amazingly well composed this film is. Yeah, you really feel like you've spent some time in this theater by the time uh... – we get to the end credits that that uh, you know the film does take us inside the world of this movie theater, the denizens of uh, of the theater who who work there, and some some of the uh, more eccentric uh, attendees, and some of the uh, world events that are happening outside of its front doors. There are some 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 major occurrences that happen over the course of the film, and it it just uh, it just has that kind of sense of place and prescience, and and it really. You know, you you feel like you know the nooks and crannies of this place by the time it's over, and 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 you know you kind of delve into the hearts of the people who've really devoted their time and their lives to this uh, to this theater. Yeah, absolutely, and it's set in the early 1980s in the sort of seaside town in the UK, um, and it's about uh, the people working there, specifically Olivia Coleman, who who gives an astonishing performance. She plays Hillary. She's sort of a middle manager at this grand seaside cinema and she's having an affair with her married boss played by Colin Firth. Now, a new employee comes aboard, Stephen, played by Michael Ward, and he connects with Hillary and shares his experience as a black man at that time in England, which, by the way, was pretty awful. Uh, and their friendship starts to turn romantic. As that happens, she starts to reveal how fragile her mental state actually is, and and it becomes, uh, you know, her her life gets in upheaval, and in some ways, so do all the people in the in this in this cinema. Um, so this film, I feel, is trying to do a number of different things. It's talking about, um, you know, people trying to live and be happy and have love and and connection with other people while managing mental illness. It's also talking about political issues uh, like racism and bigotry within the society. And it's also trying to be about the celebration of cinema and about the, um, you know, the joy and the escape that uh, a cinema provides. And I think it doesn't do all of these things equally well. I would say that the first two things it's actually pretty good at doing, you know, that there's a scene about – 
uh, two thirds of the way in where there's this sort of parade across in front of the cinema and uh, a bunch of um, louts, um, you know, white uh, supremacists uh, approach uh, the cinema. And it's frightening, so frightening in a way that uh, that's really in some ways very hard to watch. And I think I think that brings home the kind of feeling of threat and fear that uh that this sort of this sort of movements can have um and I, I actually thought that Coleman was so good and the and the casting and the performances were so good I felt like her character stuff was great too I wasn't actually as much sold about the idea that the cinema is this like almost this replacement for church in the way for some people that there's this incredible you know love this passion for cinema that didn't grab me as much which kind of is kind of ironic since it feels like that should be the bedrock of the rest of the story yeah, I feel like that aspect of the film was kind of inspired by the work of uh, there's a British filmmaker, Terence Davies, who's devoted a fair bit of time um, to his movies, uh, Distant Voices, Still Lives, uh, The Long Day Closes. Uh, there are shots of people gazing up in awe at the, the projected beam of light, which is, I feel like, a direct borrow in uh, Empire of Light. I feel like he's borrowing directly from Terence Davies and being British and a filmmaker, he would have seen those films, I'm pretty sure, and would have been inspired by them. And uh, I think those films probably do a better job of, uh, there's certainly more lyrical, more poetic kind of movies. And, and I think they do um, delve into that relationship between, uh, between the audience and sort of popular culture, or popular art in the form of cinema. But uh yeah, I guess it has to pick its battles because there's so much in here. You know, obviously the setting is a movie theater, so we have to have some of that kind of ode to the the cinema of the day. Uh, yeah, Chariots of Fire, <laughs> which is which is kind of funny because I, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of that film. I, I'm I'm not sure if what Mendy's personal co connection to that particular film is, or if he even has one. Uh, I'm sure he, he must. It was uh, certainly a, a a big hit at the time and a big Oscar winner, and, and a film that seems to have have uh, not had that great of reputation in, in the uh, ensuing years, like a lot of big uh, Oscar winners, I guess, you know, they, they seem to fall out of favor pretty quickly. Uh, and, and that one is, is no different. Uh, and, you know, but then there's a scene where, where we see, uh, you know, Peter Sellers and being there uh, and, and I have a very personal connection to that movie. So that hit me pretty hard uh, when, when that occurs late in the film and, and, you know, again, it's obviously, Mendes probably has that same kind of connection to it as well. You know, it's funny. I actually heard Sam Mendes be uh, interviewed on the Empire podcast, right. which, of course, we've mentioned here a few times and uh, one of my favorite film podcasts. And he talked a little bit about the choice of the films that we see up on the marquee as we go through the course of the film. Sometimes we see little or hear bits of, of dialogue, you know. Uh, Stir Crazy, for instance, plays a part. Right. And uh, we see you know, Blues Brothers up there. It's like all the movies that were coming out during the early 1980s, I guess. He did mention that uh, Chariots of Fire was important for the British film industry. But yes. he said, I don't. I didn't get the sense that it was super important to him personally. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, because I think, I think he has a sense that over time it hasn't aged as well but as you say a lot of these big oscar movies you know they they don't quite have the same it's almost like an artificial um reverence for them around the ward season uh as this comes out actually as, as people will be listening to this podcast it'll be oscar nomination day if you listen to this on tuesday when it uh when <laughs> either either on cktu or on your favorite podcast platform um 
And uh, yeah, it's like we're right in the midst of that award season. And, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what movies actually get attention uh, this Oscar season. And, you know, it's funny is that Empire of Light, I think, was set up to be Oscar bait. And I don't think it's getting a whole lot of love. No, not on that same kind of level. And uh, and, and that's probably as it should be. I, I think it's very good for what it is. But I don't think it's uh, one of the top 10 films of the year or anything like that. But uh, and, and maybe that is because it's such a thematic and dramatic kind of mishmash in a way. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's any any segment in the film, uh, whether it's uh, the, the, the mental illness aspect of it or or the film aspect of it or the racism, you know, it, if it had maybe it zeroed in on one of those uh, more directly that, that maybe it would have had a more solid impact. But, uh, but as, as it does, I think it does a pretty good job of juggling, but I mean, I could just watch a film about Toby Jones's character, <laughs> the projectionist. And um, you know, and I do want to know more about some of these characters, but th- that's always a good thing when a film leaves you wanting more. I yeah, I suppose I, I didn't. I wasn't crazy about Toby Jones. I that's the part of the film I thought was the weakest was like trying to get us interested in the nuts and bolts of of cinema and light and and it, having it almost like a religious experience. I was just mm-hmm. like, eh, I just I I feel like a lot of other movies have done that much better. But it's you know talking about Roger Deakins and his incredible work here. I mean, this is one of the most beautiful films I've seen in the past year. And he genuinely creates kind of a cinema magic as a visual text. So, you know, you almost don't need that aspect of the thematic storytelling because it's right there yes. on the screen. The, the the cinema itself looks so beautiful. All the surroundings around the cinema look beautiful. It's just such a, an incredible widescreen experience. And I would urge anybody who is interested in cinema just to check it out for that reason alone, even if you you don't necessarily connect with the uh, the story itself. Yeah, the the warm glow of the theater is so inviting, and and then uh, you've got the cold blue of the ocean directly outside of the theater. It's 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 on a it's on kind of a, a seaside boulevard, and I think Margate is. Yeah, where, I don't know if they say specifically where it was filmed, um, because there's any number of those sort of seaside resort towns around the coast of of England, but it, it's Margate, which is right at kind of where the Thames meets the ocean, and. Uh, you know, still a very popular sort of vacation town. And, and at the time, of course, there was a mod revival spurred on by the movie Quadrophenia and, and um, mods were descending on towns like this and Brighton kind of imitating their, their forebears in the 1960s. But of course, along with that came with the violence um, of the mods versus the rockers that we see in the film Quadrophenia seen played out, but this time it's in the national front and, and the, the skinheads of, of that time. And, and uh, the, the film does, uh, you know, we see that, that, racism which was erupting on the streets of london places like brickton brixton and so on was was happening in small towns too it's just so pervasive and and what uh you know what still is a problem in england today so th- at least there are some parallels to uh to some um some modern day issues that we can draw on from this film oh yeah yeah for sure now we also watched Revolutionary Road from 2008. This is another Sam Mendes film. Also, Roger Deakins is aboard as a cinematographer. It was written by Justin Haith uh, from a novel by Richard Yates. And I remember this film when it came out. Um, It was kind of, it was marketed as, you know, the return of um, Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio in a film together, along with Kathy Bates, all of whom, of course, were in the Titanic. So that's the way they sold this. But they also released it in December of 2008 as Oscar bait. And I don't think it worked out so well. There there was some nominations, but nobody won um, anything uh, from this film. 
However, it is an interesting one to revisit. It's about a couple, Frank and April Wheeler, who met in the city and they move out to Connecticut to have that 1950s suburban paradise thing that was sold to America at the time. But they really chafe at the suburban life and we sort of get balcony seats for the collapse of their marriage. There's also an undercurrent sort of exploration of the emptiness of American masculinity and the men who refuse to under the, understand themselves or the women that they're partnered with. Of course, the women, they understand. <laughs> they understand a lot more than the guys do. Um, and, you know, this the thing with this picture, it's a rough ride watching this couple suffer through tough times. Um, I enjoyed seeing it again, largely for the supporting work from Michael Shannon, especially, who did get a, an Academy Award nomination, Best Supporting Actor. I thought he was so good in it in the scenes that he's in, but, um, I didn't love the movie and seeing it again. I'm like, yeah, no, I sort of feel the same way. It's, it's again, Roger Deakins, beautiful to look at. It's gorgeous, gorgeous, uh, sets and it lit so well, but, uh, but no, I didn't love it. How did you feel about it, Stephen? Yeah, it's, it's a great evocation of that period in terms of the look and the style and, and, you know, the attention to detail and, and, and as with Empire of Light, we should probably give credit to the, the art direction because, uh, you know, it's the cinematography is one thing, but what he has to shoot is, is, a, is another. And, and, and Deacon's work with some great uh, art directors and, and crews on, in that regard. And they're working overtime here as well. But uh, yeah, the drama began to feel a little flat to me. We, we, we never get a handle really on uh, DiCaprio's character, on Frank Wheeler, because he keeps sort of yo-yoing between wanting to, to you know, fall in line with his wife's dream of, you know, dropping everything and moving to Paris. And then, and then uh, you know, keeping her in her safe little domestic uh, kind of uh, cubicle, <laughs> you know, her uh, her cubbyhole or whatever. Like it just, uh, and it just changes from scene to scene. Like he just sort of jackknifes around, and and I, I didn't have a real good grip on on where he was coming from. It just just uh, you know whether or not he's he's yelling or pleading, and that seemed to be his two modes. <laughs> of uh, of communication and, and it yeah I, I don't know it, it just felt very middle brow and not very uh not very interesting i didn't you know considering the star power of of the actors even they couldn't really save uh what seems like a very sort of a conventional soap opera yeah you're not wrong um i really like winslet actually in this film and i generally like her in everything i feel like she can make a meal out of almost any role and she's quite something to see here but I often struggle with DiCaprio. And, you know, I don't like to blame the actors for problems in films. And I think the real problem here is the script. But I feel like DiCaprio wants to be like he's really channeling Jack Nicholson here. There's something in his mannerisms that reminds me of Nicholson because Nicholson has played so many roles where he's used rage and frustration as uh, as part of one of his tools. But the difference is that Nicholson was always sort of boyishly appealing. He had kind of a uh, and I talk to him like like it's like I talk about him like he's past tense. He's just retired. He's still a really us, but he hasn't worked yeah. in many years. Um, but he, when he was in his prime, you know, he was so good at playing characters that were really difficult and hard to like. But at the same time, you kind of warmed up to them because he was so charming. And DiCaprio feels like he's missing some of that. There's something absent in that. And and it was really hard to sympathize with him at all in this film. And, and I found that a real, I mean, there's no arc for him. He he He's supposed to be this bohemian when we first meet him, but I didn't buy that at all. No, I just felt like he was, he was just this bro who was completely self-deluded, but somehow managed to convince this wonderful woman that, uh, you know, 
she should get married to him and they should have kids and they should have this whole family and uh and then you know the truth came out but uh but yeah it, there there isn't much of an arc and unfortunately it's too bad because you know the supporting cast is pretty good in this Zoe Kazan, Katherine Hahn, uh David Harbour, Dylan Baker, uh Michael Shannon of course as I mentioned um and of course, it looks so good. The shots mm. of DiCaprio on the train, the ones of him in Grand Central Station. Um, when he goes out with his colleagues for liquid lunches, that restaurant has that sandy yellow look about it. I love that. And and the score is these mostly piano signatures really helps with, with setting a tone. But yeah, there's something there's something really flawed here. Yeah, I just uh yeah, it I just felt this film maybe it didn't know what it wanted to be. And, 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 and I think Kate Winslow's part is really underwritten, uh, which is another issue. <laughs> like it's, it's mostly sort of focused on Frank, but I'm more interested in April. It seems like she suffers from depression or she's having some, some mental illness issues that aren't really addressed in the film, uh, to any great degree, at least not trying to give us any understanding of what she's going through. You know, she's just, you know, either she's kind of making these, you know, whimsical decisions to move to Paris or, or what have you, but, uh, you know, or she's deciding to fall in line with Frank and you, you're never really sure what's motivating her or, or why she's making these decisions. And I, I feel like she was really underserved here. Mm, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, there are some things in it I enjoyed, and sometimes it's just fun to watch actors going, you know, trying to, to chew through material, especially when they're as talented as this, you know, just to, like, read what's going on under the surface. But, but yeah, I don't know that I'd recommend Revolutionary Road as beautiful as it looks. Uh, and that's, I think, what we're going to find here maybe <laughs> with the, the other movies we're talking about from uh, from Roger Deakins with his his imprint on them. Sometimes they look terrific, but they might not always be awesome. <laughs> Okay, and we're back here on Lends Me Your Ears. We're talking about Roger Deakins, a great uh, director of photography, cinematographer, who has been working since the mid-70s in a variety of roles. He started in the UK and moved his way to Hollywood eventually. And, of course, now he has a very distinct style. And, of course, he's he's working with all these great filmmakers. Um, but he started in, you know, fairly modest uh, 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 fields, uh, modest films. <laughs> I went back, or we went back to watch something he did, his first credit as a cinematographer, 1977's film Cruel Passion, otherwise known as the Marquis de Sade's Justine, otherwise known as Justine, The Misfortunes of Virtue, which uh, we found on Canopy. And uh, this is a, you know, a classic sexploitation film from the 70s, you know, with with like the kind of thing, a dialogue like this, Satan will urge you into the violent hot flames of lust that are the very flames of hellfire, hellfire, hellfire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, so says a priest in a black clad, uh, coal eyed goths look sullenly on the scene as a young woman in translucent white gown carries a large wooden cross. I mean, this is, this is, yeah, as I said, total peak sexploitation. You know, you adapt a piece of classic literature, which, you know, so you can get away with calling it, you know, art. But in fact, the crux of it is, is trying to get, uh, your female cast out of their clothes as often as possible. And that's pretty much what's going on here. It's a story of two young virgin sisters, Justine and Juliet, played by Koo Stark and Lydia Liesel, respectively. When we meet them, they're living in a convent, but Juliet especially seems to have lustful feelings for her sisters in the convent, a chafes at the hypocrisy rampant in this place, so she convinced 
convinces Justine to leave and go to a brothel and learn about the erotic arts. But uh, so Juliet catches the eye of a certain Lord Carlisle, which who she seems fond of. But she really takes the whole idea of pleasure for pleasure's sake, while Justine wants to stay, have a certain amount of virtue. So but she has to deal with terrible men behaving badly and bandits and murderers. And er ironically, she has a much harder time of it than her sister does, who embraced a more depraved lifestyle. So, (laughs) yeah, that's that's basically the crux of it. I mean, it it is this is. This is Roger Deakins still working in analog, clearly. It, it yes. actually, for the kind of film it is, it actually doesn't look too bad. Some of the interiors are overlit, as was the style at the time. Some of the exteriors look pretty good. Um, but, uh, yeah, and the costumes and sets, locations, there they don't actually look too cheap. But uh, the worst I could say is that it has a bit of a TV movie sheen to it. Um, yeah. What did you make of, uh, of, one of, of this film? Right. Well, of course, uh, the the film uh, I saw this film on VHS years and years and years ago, uh, and it uh, you know which of course looked a lot darker and grainier and grimier. Yeah, uh, although it's still pretty grainy and grimy uh, as we as we saw on Canopy. But um, you know the the film was pretty much forgotten, and then Ku uh, Stark became a bit of a cause celebre because she'd been dating Prince Andrew. Oh right, yes, and uh, that's what the film. All of a sudden, you know, the, there was it came back out on VHS, and you know, this is you know several years later, and uh, her. You know, it's not like she had a storied career as an actor or anything like that, but this film was kind of dredged up, and and of course the the tabloids had a field day with all of that kind of stuff. I mean, thankfully, her story is not uh, a tragic one she became a she i think she moved she might have moved to the states but she became a photographer of some renown and and uh i think she even owns a photography gallery um is somewhere in new york and uh and so you know managed to to make something of her life beyond uh being tabloid headline fodder so that's you know at least that's something positive uh that we can glean from this but yeah the the, the film is clearly trying to do a bunch of different things it's it's uh it's the second and final film of its director, uh, Chris Bozier. Uh, it's, um, I, I don't know, I'm not sure what happened to him, but this is, you know, considering this didn't have its success until it was released on video. I mean, that's, that might explain something there, but, um, you know, he's clearly trying to bring some form of artistry to what is, as you described it, uh, you know, exploitative fair, you know, sort of nuns on the run. <laughs> <laughs> kind of in the, very, uh, very different from it, the nuns in the middle 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 that we saw. Yes, but yes, yes. Different, different kinds of nuns, but they are on the run. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, or, or novates or, or whatever they're called. Novitiates, yeah. Novitiates, yes, yes. Um, and, uh, you know, so it, it wants to have its kind of exploitative cheese and eat its artistic cake too. But, um, <laughs> you know, and he, so there's, there's some pretty. Uh, obvious steals from Ken Russell's The Devils was obviously a big influence on this film. And and uh, there are other elements that are borrowed from sort of European exploitative fare, filmmakers by, like Just Franco and Jean Rollins, stuff like that. Like he's clearly been sort of studying what was going on in the, in the sort of artsy or grindhouses and is trying to bring that to a, to a British-made film. And, uh, you know, th- there's a few familiar faces of, British character actors that kind of liven up the proceedings. And he also hired the star of um, uh, uh, Martin Potter, who starred in Fellini's Satyricon, and, and not a whole lot else, uh, is uh, Lord Carlyle. So the, the, so the major romantic male character is, is an actor who would have been sort of well-known in art film circles at the time for starring in that uh, Fellini film, which is, is also another influence on this, depicting a world of debauchery and, and, and so on. So 
but uh, but yeah, definitely does not have the script or the skills or the cast to pull off anything uh, remotely close to what uh, what his influences were. Yeah, no, I I uh, I won't be rushing back to see this again anytime soon. I mean, it's it's all pretty soft core. In some ways, yeah. it's practically wholesome by today's standards of titillating mm, material. I, I suppose, except with the, uh, spoiler alert, very bleak ending. Yes, it's true. The ending is incredibly bleak. Um, but it, you know, I guess that's true to form for the Marquis de Sade. So. Yeah, yeah. Like one character is assaulted and then almost torn about apart by dogs and then assaulted again. And it's like, I mean, the, the lesson here is that, uh, that the, you know, the more the, 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 the characters who have seemed to come to peace or embraced a more depraved and, uh, pleasure seeking lifestyle have a much happier life, I think is the crux of it anyway. <laughs> maybe, maybe anyway, that's what I got from it. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. So, um, so, from here, uh, this w- did turn out to be something of a of a career opportunity for Roger Deakins, and he went on to shoot uh, a number of different feature films and other projects, including Return to Waterloo from 1984. And this is an odd little little film. It's like an hour long film from Ray Davies, and I hadn't heard of it until we talked. We planned to put this uh, this episode of Lens Mirror Ears together. Um, on its surface, it feels like he was kind of trying to do his own version of Alan Parker's Pink Floyd: The Wall, sort of a a visual companion semi musical to the record, except you know, at a lower budget. Um, I mean, yeah. we even get a shot of Battersea Power Station. So the, it, that <laughs> I couldn't help but think about that. Simil- thematically, there are certainly a few th- similarities. British middle-class obsessions, conformity versus freedom, the dark underbelly of society, sex and shame, the drudgery and despair of life. Um, it's, it's a, in the crux of it is an hour long film about a commuter played by Kenneth Coley, who will always be Admiral Piet from Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back to me. Um, he takes a train from the suburbs into Waterloo Station in London. He doesn't speak for the duration of the film. He flashes back to his childhood and his youth when he enjoyed, when he joined the rat race on the ladder of success, as the lyrics go. He keeps seeing a, an attractive women on the train and when he arrives in the subway, uh, and in the subway and Davies, of course, can't resist playing a busker in the subway. Uh, and, and unfortunately uh, for all the people in London, there is a, a, a rapist loose who in character drawings in the newspaper looks a lot like our commuter. So there's this element of tension. Is he, in fact, living this double life? Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, I, I know you're a big uh, Kinks fan, Stephen. So maybe you have more insight to this project than than I do just by having watched it. Well, I I uh, remember when this came out at the time, I actually bought the soundtrack LP, which I still have at the time it came out. It was kind of unique. It was Ray Davies' first, I think is the first official ever solo recording. Of course, since the Kinks have called it a day, he's had several more solo records, which uh, have for the most part been very good. Uh, and, you know, he, he always had an interest in film to some degree, uh, at least in, through the 1970s. He did some work for, for television productions and he staged... Uh, you know, a televised uh, play version of the album Soap Opera, which is a Kinks album that then they took it out on the road and sort of reenacted the storyline about a rock star who wants to live like a normal nine to five worker and experience that for, for an upcoming record. Or, and so it's, it's, it gets very meta <laughs> as a result. And, and so this feels like an extension of that. Uh, Davies had obviously been very interested in the kind of middle-class, uh, you know, families and, and, and lifestyle going back to a well-respected man, one of the Kinks hits of the 1960s. And this feels like an extension of, of a lot of stuff that had been on those Kinks records. Um, you know, there've been, uh, 
you know, he had done songs about hoodlum youth uh, in the seventies with the Kinks, and we see that here as well. And and I feel like it's a lot of those obsessions kind of bubbling bubbling to the surface um, with a bit of a darker edge, maybe here with the, with the subplot about the the rapist or murderer who's who's on the loose, and the fact that the the person we're following may or may not. Uh, be uh the person who's committing these crimes but he's he's so so much a a person in gray as uh ray had sung in an earlier song that uh that nobody notices or nobody sees the uh the resemblance uh and it's you know it is kind of an extended music video so it doesn't have to rely necessarily on on sort of plot uh um shall we say coherence uh necessarily but but it is an interesting sort of snapshot of london and and england as he saw it at that time and and uh you know this the sort of the squeezing out of the middle class as it were and and so we get the the punks including a young tim roth uh at one end and the kind of the senior executives at the other who are, show their derision and of uh of young people and other sort of middle class co-workers and so on so uh, it's, 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 it's interesting if you're a Kings fan, but it is worth, worth a watch. I, I, I find the music holds up pretty well. Um, not all the Kings music from that period does necessarily. Some of it sounds very dated, but, but this is a, a kind of a fun thing. And, and of course, Deacons was, uh, you know, working uh, on quite a few music videos at that time. He, he hadn't really, um, got his foot in the door as substantially a feature film uh, cinematographer. He, he did the sexual healing video for Marvin Gaye huh. uh, of all things. So this was kind of in his uh, field uh, as it were at the time. And, and, um, and uh, it's, it doesn't necessarily have the kind of look um, that we would associate with one of his uh, feature film projects, but, but uh, it, it seems like they worked well together anyway. It does capture that kind of gritty um, urban and uh, you know, the, the, the train yard look of uh, that uh, Davies is going after. I mean, Battersea is a pretty industrial, pretty working class kind of area, and uh, uh, there was then anyway. Yeah, certainly, certainly then. Now <laughs> it's, it's they've. I guess the plant is now a shopping mall or something like and, that, and or, condos, like and condos. Like it's yeah, it's all been converted. So, yeah. yeah, it does does feel like a snapshot into Thatcherite uh, England at the time. So yeah, it's uh, it's something. It's I mean, I I liked a lot of the music. Some of it and lyrics, you know, are you know, just because they gave you life, they can't stop if you grow. Now they can't hold you back because you're going solo. I was like, oh boy, that seems a little on the nose. Um, but then <laughs> well, a lot of it is. <laughs> and then there's, but there's when when Tim Roth and the and the the sort of punk show up. There's a song they 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 all sing on the train with oh, the boombox. You sold me out. Yeah, you That's sold a great song. you sold me out to get a better deal for yourself. Now we want some of your precious wealth. I love that. That was really cool. Um, and I liked it when it really leaned into the musical aspects when all the commuters on the train begin to sing about what a shame the country has gone down the tubes. All the good men are gone, etc. Um, yeah, all of that. That was there was some fun stuff there, uh, and I can understand being this being made in 1984, exploring the narrative possibilities of uh, you know with MTV hot, uh, you know music video and and making a long music video over the course of an hour. I think that that makes sense to me. Uh, we watched this on Tubi, where uh, the film is on like four by three ratio, and it never. It was, yeah, I think that's how it was shot. So. Yeah, it's got like that made for TV feeling, but uh, I still think Deacons did a reasonably good job. I mean, mostly that sort of kitchen sink realism yeah um, there was no budget for this at yeah all, so it doesn't surprise me um so let's talk about one more film he made in the 80s called defense of the realm we found this well i had it on dvds that's where we watched from 1985 
Denholm Elliott stars. He's kind of like the British Jack Lemmon, isn't he? He's so good at playing disheveled, put-upon people. Here he's an elder newspaper man, a man with a connection to a shamed British MP. And uh, that MP has been caught visiting the same sex worker as a KGB agent. But that's just the state. It's a start of, of a dense and terrific thriller mostly featuring Gabriel Byrne as a, as a newspaper guy, Nick Mullen. He's a tabloid reporter. He's right in the center of it. He's digging into this case, and he starts to piece together the backstory involving an American military base out in the countryside, the death of a young man, uh, nuclear weapons, uh, the publisher of the very paper that he works at, and Greta Skaki, who plays the MP's secretary. I mean, this is actually a paranoid thriller, as much in the mold of the Parallax View or Three Days of the Condor. And I wouldn't—I would say it's—it's it's, well, not quite as good as those movies. It's definitely in the ballpark, and there's a nod or two to Chinatown as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's room here for Nick to be this kind of trashy, not above lying to a source to get into her car and surreptitiously interviewing her before she clues into him being this, like, tabloid reporter. Um, but he's actually got a good heart, and, you know, he he's dogged in trying to get to the truth of what's actually going on. And I, I did appreciate his his the comparisons to him with, the like, Jake Giddies from Chinatown. Um, it's directed by David Drury, written by Martin Stellman, and I thought it was really gripping stuff. And nice to see Robbie Coltrane in a small role. Of course, we did an episode on him a few a little while ago where he we we saw some of his movies. So yeah, yeah, I thought uh, I thought that this picture, um, Defense of the Realm, was pretty great. Yeah, I really like this. This is one of those films I've been wanting to see for a long time. I like Gabriel Byrne, and I, I feel like there's a, a number of films in his filmography that I've, I've kind of missed out on. And he's he's great here as as the kind of the world weary reporter. It, it's it's certainly a role we've seen played uh, any number of times by any number of different actors. But he, I feel like he does put a fresh personal spin on it. And uh, Roger Dury didn't have much of a career in features. Uh, uh, David Dury or David Dury, right? Yeah. Um, but you know, he did on go on to work on some excellent TV series like Prime Suspect with Helen Mirren and um, a number of other shows. But um, uh, you know, I, I feel like he, he's got a good hand on the sort of understanding all the different elements at play. I mean, this is a thing, a story. I mean, there are references to John le Carré, which is, of course, it's it's almost like he's beating you to the punch since you're going to think about it anyway. So they'll they'll name check John le Carré. Um, but uh, I, f I feel like uh, he has a good grip on the story and telling it in a coherent manner, which which I liked, and 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 keeping all the different elements at play between the 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 uh, the business interests and the government interests, and then the, the 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 people in the press who are trying to get under the skin of what's really going on behind this scandal and behind a couple of uh, of mysterious deaths that uh, are connected to it, and 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 one of those great casts of, of British character actors. You mentioned John uh, Robbie Coltrane, John Coltrane, Robbie Coltrane, also Ian Bannon, uh, terrific uh, British character character actor denim elliott as um, a fellow reporter is, is terrific uh here as, as kind of gabriel's friend but also kind of a competitor in terms of getting to the story and then there's a great uh camaraderie ship a com comradeship between them and and uh I, I just i felt like all the elements uh, really came together in this film yeah oh and bill patterson as well yes. is great he's another a scott actor who i've always liked in everything i've seen him in um, yeah, and about the look of the thing, I mean, this is, I guess, Deacon's now getting to make feature films in the UK as a cinematographer. I thought the newsroom was 
it's impressively authentic. There was something about you could just smell the coffee and the and those <laughs> all those crumpled pieces of paper and, and the, the Dunhills. Yeah, yeah, all the <laughs> cigarette smoking. Um, you know, and and despite I watched it, we watched it on DVD, and despite it being an old disc, it actually looked pretty crisp. A lot of better than a lot of movies from the era, I would say. And it has a sort of mood that I appreciated. Of course, I, as a longtime London uh, fan of, of that city, it was great seeing some of those locations used well. Um, you know, some of those locations probably very different today, but, uh, but still it was, it was cool to see one. There was a shot between, um, Gabriel Byrne and Greta Skaki on, uh, one of the bridges across from the Royal Festival Hall having a, a meeting and during, a, I guess, commuter time because lots of people coming back and forth and, I love that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think fans of London or British uh, um, thrillers will want to seek this out. I'm not actually sure how easy it is to find. As I said, we found it on on physical media, but it, it might be out there somewhere. Yeah, I think you can rent it from a couple of the different platforms. So, um, you know, either either iTunes or Apple or what have you. And and uh, yeah, I did appreciate the fact that the uh, the reporters' uh, flats looked realistic as opposed to the films where, like, you know, the, where a, a magazine freelancer will have this, you know, expansive Manhattan uh, loft or whatever that, you know, in real life they could never afford here. Everything felt very grounded and very realistic, and it's definitely worth hunting down. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. And welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. And on this show, we're looking at the work of cinematographer Roger Deakins. And uh, mo most recently, we've looked at the film Empire of Light, uh, a celebration of cinema and then the people who love it and who work in that industry um, with a nostalgic glow to a theater from days gone by. And uh, we've, we've been looking at a number of films from over the course of his career. And this uh, segment will bring us into the 1990s and some of the films that uh, really got him at attention in, in Hollywood and, and among film buffs after uh, establishing himself in the UK, where his, uh, his, his native home and land. And this, uh, the first film we're going to look at is uh, John Sayles' Passion Fish, uh, a film that uh, falls in line with uh, Sayles' films like The Return of the Sakaka Seven and Liana, very personal dramas, uh, very female-centric, uh, with some, some great characters and some great acting. And, and Deacon's, I uh, think in his only collaboration with sales, if I'm not mistaken, I might be mistaken, but uh, as far as I know, I think it's the only time they work together. And uh, the results are quite fantastic in a film that I think uh, has really stood the test of time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Passion Fish. It's been a long time since I've seen it, and I'm a longtime fan of John Sayles, um, and I had almost no memory of it, but I'll just, I remember it was good. And seeing it again, what a joy it is to revisit and find that it is just wonderful. Uh, the gradual pace and getting to know these characters. About an hour in, I was just convinced I wanted to spend the whole day with these people because I like them so much. Mary McDonald plays a soap opera actor, May Alice, who we meet when she's in the hospital. She was struck by a taxi on a New York street, I guess, and lost the use of her legs. Frustrated by her situation and on all the physical therapy, she escapes and heads down to Louisiana, which was her home. She left years ago, and we get the impression she hasn't been back for a long time. And the homestead 
head there is uh, on the bayou, and that's where she holds up with a rotating cast of nurses, and she doesn't treat them very well. What's likely the last nurse the agency sends is Chantel, played by Alfre Woodard, who is also terrific here. The crux of the story is about their relationship. Relationship. May Alice is an alcoholic, and Chantel has her own addiction issues. There's sort of a power struggle there, while other characters float around the periphery, including Vondi Curtis Hall as Sugar Ledoux, sort of a Cajun cowboy. David Strathairn as Rennie Boudreaux, who is a, a old flame, I guess, or, or or May Alice always had a crush on her on him back in high school. Um, and then May Alice's old frenemies, the Robichauds, played by Nora Dunn and Mary Potzer, <laughs> um, or sorry, Portzer, I guess is, her, is how you pronounce that name. And uh, and then May Alice's actor friends also appear, played by Sheila Kelly. Angela Bassett, who's great seeing her, and Nancy Meddy, who gets a terrific monologue about having landed her first role in a feature film where she had the only one line, (laughs) I didn't ask for the anal probe. (laughs) That is amazing that, you know, just as kind of a throwaway moment, it becomes this wonderful, wonderful scene. I love that. I loved all of this film. It's so smartly written by sales, so funny, and the tone is so well managed. Um, yeah, I mean, there were some small things I had nitpicky feelings about. I didn't think the score was all that. It's, it's a little bit, uh, it's, it's a twangy guitar score, which doesn't quite, hasn't quite aged as well. Oh Uh, no, there's the early in the film, the Mason Daring was uh, the composer that keeps hitting these guitar stings that are, uh, are purely self-parody and thankfully that he's off on those. Yes. But I was worried (laughs) at the start of like, okay, if, if it, you know, keeps doing these kind of. I'm trying to think what film I would associate with them. Just a low budget cop thrillers, you know, yeah. just have good, <laughs> yeah. Clapton-esque guitar stings through the whole thing. I, I was going to be very disappointed, but thankfully once we get down on the bayou, things settle down we get some, some authentic Cajun music instead, which is a big improvement. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it ends a little, I won't say anticlimactically, but it's slightly glib. I thought the ending, it's just like the, the, the characters, there's a moment where they're together alone and they kind of come to peace with each other and make a decision about their shared future, which is actually kind of lovely, but tonally it all, it almost ends on a joke. And I just felt like, uh, though this film does a great job of managing both serious drama and almost melodrama with humor. Uh, oh, there's so much humor in passion fish. Uh, it, I didn't. I didn't quite love that ending. So, but it's hardly. That's a very small point because I think overall I was so enjoying being in this movie. Yeah, the time you spend with these characters is is is, is purely enjoyable. And and I I saw this back in '92 when when it came out and uh, sort of had not revisited it since. So it was a real pleasure to go back there and see what I remembered, what I didn't remember, and and uh, I I had forgotten how funny much of it is. I mean. Uh, Mary uh, McDonald's character has such a that sharp tongue and dry, dry <laughs> wit, and and uh, you know Alfre Woodard, uh, her nurse is is having none of it. You know she's like she's pretty no nonsense, but but we do really get to know these characters in an intimate and believable way over the course of the film as we learn more about their their backstories and and how they got where they were. I mean I, I mean Mary McDonald, uh, uh, May Alice could have been kind of a two dimensional sort of diva soap opera star character 
in a wheelchair and uh, she's anything but that you know she, you they kind of set set her up to be like that but then she, she quickly disarms you uh, pretty much right away and there's there's a scene in the film where the two of them are watching whatever happened to baby jane which <laughs> or you know they say they are they don't actually have the they don't show any clips from the film because it costs money to license i guess but but uh but it's it's a funny little allegory and and to their uh, situation and their relationship. And I, I just like those kind of touches of humor and that the characters are very kind of self-aware in that way. Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Roger Deakins' cinematography is very clean and bright here. It, it doesn't really feel like Southern Gothic the way I would consider it with a lot of shadows and that sepia tone. This is... You know, maybe this is just because it's more of the era early 90s American indie film was like at the time. Um, you know, there's a great segment here in the film where they go out into the swamp in the day. Um, and uh, and yeah, with David Strathairn's character and uh, they come back at night. And that's really something to see the way it's shot. I don't know that I can remember another film that's shot in the bayou at night that really captures with all the sound of the insects, you know, and all the life. Uh, you know the biosphere around them it's a really gorgeous moment the, the the whole thing is beautiful and of course just to have two fabulously written female characters uh played so well it's just such a treat and uh you know certainly the sort of thing you'd like to see more of yeah and, and sales really was the king of american independent film and and he's missed i mean i guess he's also retired because i think he's just writing novels these days i don't i it hasn't been a, it's been a while since we've seen anything from him um, so our final film here on Lends Me Your Ears for this episode is Kundun from 1997, maybe the biggest outlier in Martin Scorsese's filmography, though connected to films like Silence and The Last Temptation of Christ uh, as one of his films directly exploring faith. Um, and this one has no stars in it. It's simply a biopic of the young life of the 14th Dalai Lama. And in some ways, it's amazing it exists at all. I guess it shows the clout that Scorsese had to get him a film made that was probably considered entirely uncommercial. Written by Melissa Matheson, who adapted The Black Stallion and wrote E.T., The Extraterrestrial. And I, I really don't know that this would get made today for a host of reasons. Yes. <laughs> um, and part of the reason it's an outlier in Scorsese's filmography is because it's so hard to see. Uh, apparently, it just, you know, we I borrowed, we borrowed a copy, or I borrowed a copy from um, from the library on on DVD, but this is not a film that it's easy to uh, to find. No, uh, and, you know, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you might believe that uh, Disney have buried this film. It's produced by Touchstone, uh, that, uh, but because it depicts the Chinese invasion of Tibet in less than, uh, and, and, and Chairman Mao himself uh, is a character in the film that, that uh, is depicted in maybe a less than flattering light uh, that they don't want to, they've kind of sort of put it on the down low. It's not on Disney Plus, that's for sure. And, uh, and or any other streaming service that I know of. So, uh, because they're so concerned about the, the, the Chinese uh, film marketplace that they've put this film on the back burner where it doesn't deserve to be. I think you can get Blu-rays from Europe if you have an all-region player. But uh, And it is a gorgeous, gorgeous-looking film. And besides Scorsese, um, you've got art direction and costume design by Dante Ferretti, who's one of the best at, at, at what he does. And also, of course, Selma Schoenmacher uh, as the uh, editor. Um, you know, it's, it's one of uh, Scorsese's best creative teams all around. And uh, the, the film is, is it's, it's a long film, but didn't feel long to me. It, I found it deeply moving. I mean, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's just a feast for the eyes. The, the, I think they shot in Morocco. They couldn't, obviously they couldn't shoot it in Tibet, but um, some of the sort of more 
remote areas of Morocco proved to have similar terrain, I guess. And that's where they shot a, a lot of uh, the exteriors and so on. And, and uh, I felt that it did a great job of explaining kind of the spiritual uh, mission of the Dalai Lama and uh, that calling, you know, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that a, someone is born into the role of the Dalai Lama is reincarnated. And, uh, and I felt that, uh, you know, created, they created a really believable character in him uh, as he uh, gets, goes from childhood to adulthood over the course of the film. Yeah. That's saying something. Cause he's played by four different yes. actors over the course of his life. Um, and you know, yeah, I, I found us kind of a history lesson go. I thought it was a pretty compelling one. I think it humanizes a story that I didn't know too much about. Um, I would say that there isn't a lot of major dramatic heft in his own character. It's more about like the stuff that happens around him compared to something like True. the last temptation of Christ, where the lead character is, is riven with doubt. Um, you know, I, I realized in my mind, I'd confused the film with both Jean-Jacques Anode's seven years in Tibet, as well as Bernardo Bertolucci's little Buddha <laughs> too. Where's Keanu Reeves going to show up? <laughs> oh, right. Different, right. Film. different film. Yeah. All nineties, uh, dramas, epics about the history of Buddhism from a Western filmmakers, uh, which, you know, is interesting that there were so many of them. But uh, but I still think this is very much worth seeing. And for the reasons you've said, it's incredible looking. The score from Philip Glass is really interesting. Fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, and I mean, you know, there's, again, talking about Roger Deakins, there's some great transitions, character disappearing into darkness. There's the visual of blood pouring onto koi ponds, a shot where we pull back to see Dalai Lama standing amidst the bodies of thousands of monks and uh you know the red and yellow uh it's just i mean it's the final 20 minutes or so is like a montage of music image and voiceover and i thought that was particularly effective And that wraps up our look at the work of Roger Deakins, an amazing cinematographer and collaborator with some of the world's best filmmakers. And of course, you know, his career extends back to the mid-1970s, and we look forward to many, many more films from him uh, down the road. Hope you enjoyed this look at his work. Uh, hopefully you'll uh, seek some of it out, either some of the films we've talked about or some of the ones we haven't talked about. Of course, certainly the, the Coen Brothers filmography. There's, there isn't a film in there that isn't worth seeing on some level, and certainly the ones that he's done with them are some of their best. If you want to follow us, we're on Facebook. We have a Facebook page and also a Twitter account at Lends Me Your Ears. And, and I can be found on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E if you want to send a message along. Yeah, I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, I'm the name of my film blog, Flaw on the Iris. And uh, yeah, we'll take uh, any any suggestions for other subjects that you might like us to talk about or get into. We'll we'll, we'll take feedback, uh, positive or negative. We're, we're happy to hear from anybody who listens to the show. Thanks as always to the folks at the Village Soundcast Network who make us sound so good and put us up on the podcast platforms. And of course, CKDU, where you can hear us every other Tuesday at 5 p.m. and allows the use of their studios to record this here program. Thanks very much, and we'll see you at the movies next time. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.